turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 22 is where we're beginning today. We like to be verse by verse, just traveling through the Word of God wherever He leads us. And as we're going through the book of Acts, you know, I'm going to be faithful to the text this morning. We're going to cover this, these last verses of ch- chapter 22 and all of 23 today. But I'm going to confess to you up front, I have, I have some springboard subjects. Usually you don't want to... Uh, you know, take, take a word, take a line out of the Bible, and then spring into what you want to talk about. There's, there's, you got to be cautious in that, especially as a communicator. But I think that what we're going to springboard into, it does tie to where we are topically, but it just ties to where the Lord, what he brought up in my own life today in different contexts, and it'll tie what I believe to be, you know, just the background of some of the hearts that are going on as we study the passage this morning. We're going to spend most of our time just in probably the first third of the passage, and then towards the end, we'll go through the last, you know, two-thirds of this chapter very quickly because it really sets up and teases us up for what the conversation will be next week in the Word. So, Let's go ahead and pick up where we are in verse 30 of chapter 22. We'll read a couple paragraphs here and then pause. So it says, the next day, because he, this is uh, the commander of the Romans, so we'll, uh, we'll give some context in a minute. He wanted to know for certain why he, being Paul, was accused by the Jews. He released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down before, brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, "Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day." And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, "God will strike you, you whitewashed wall." For you sit to judge me according to law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile, do you abuse? Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And we said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel is spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must all bear witness, for you must also bear witness at Rome. 
So here's where we are in context. In chapter 19 of Acts, you have Paul in Ephesus for three years. In chapter 20, it goes really rapidly and sends Paul. We see him go up, and again, watch my hands. I'm, I'm drawing a map in my mind if you're wondering what I'm doing with my hands. So he's going, he's going up, spends some time in Philippi. He goes down through Macedonia and Greece into Achaia where Corinth is located. He winters in Corinth. While he's in Corinth is when we believe he writes uh, the letter to the Romans. And then you have him on the track back up through those same areas. He pauses in Philippi. But while he is in Philippi, is where we get this, this snapshot that the Lord is speaking to Paul to go to Jerusalem, and that his heart is, is set on going to Jerusalem, and his heart is set on being there by the Pentecost festival. But this is something that the Lord has placed within Paul to go. So as we travel through chapters 20 and 21, we see that there's multiple stops along the way as Paul is heading towards Jerusalem where the Holy Spirit is telling Paul where the Holy Spirit is telling the church that what awaits Paul when he arrives in Jerusalem. Trials, tribulations, literal bondage, he's going to be arrested. Literally, he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. So a couple weeks ago, as we were sitting in the context, we watched the Jews make an assumption that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple, and that's what created this mob environment. And in the midst of the mob environment where the Jews are seeking to kill Paul, the Romans intervene, and they bring Paul out of that. They rescue him. They save him from danger out of that moment. And as Paul is being led into this fortress called Antonia, which is on the northwest corner of the temple platform, he asks the commander to be able to speak to the Jews, and he begins to speak to them in what we think is Aramaic at that time in their own language. And he sits in the testimony of his life. This is who I was. I'm zealous for God just as you were zealous for God. And he goes through this circumstance where he is fighting. He thinks he is fighting for God. And we're going we're gonna to use this phrase a little bit, lest we fight against God. He thinks he is fighting for God. But as he is going down the road of his life, he's literally going down the road to Damascus who stands in his way. Jesus manifests himself in light and in glory and speaks this audible voice to Paul. And again, this is, this is part of the prayer this morning. This is not just this morning, but it's, it's really in every day of our life. Um, if I'm being stubborn like Balaam, for those of you who know that story, where God needs to stand in my path to get my attention, to keep me aimed at him, or whether that's you, I'm praying that the Lord would manifest himself to you in that radical way. Whatever, whatever it needs to be, that if you're heading in a direction where you are fighting against God in your life, whether it be big, whether it be small, that he would make himself known to you. Whether that's visually, whether that's audibly, whether that's through his word, whether that's through his circumstance, Jesus, would you please make yourself known? And for those of you who are following Jesus, and you just need to know that he's there, just like at the end of what we just read here, Jesus revealed himself to Paul. In the midst of 
you know, this, this isn't a cakewalk for Paul, and we'll get into some of this context. But Jesus made himself known to Paul while Paul was following Jesus. And for some of you, you need that comfort today. You need that courage to come from God where you need to hear from him. Son, daughter, be of good cheer. Take courage. So here, Paul, as he's giving his testimony, and he is relating to the Jews this experience that he had, and then what Jesus is doing and commanding him to do with his life, He's talking to the crowd of Jerusalem, and he says, Jesus told me that you people were not going to listen. So, because you weren't going to listen, he sent me to the Gentiles, and that's when the mob freaks out at the word Gentiles. Again, there's, there's a religious context associated with that. There is a political context associated with that that we brought it up last time. But here Paul is now, as he, makes the, as he says this word, the crowd erupts again, and then the Roman commander removes Paul out of that context, and now I'm going I'm to find out what you just said. And then Paul says, well, wait a minute, I'm a Roman, so are you uh, going to condemn? Are you going to beat a, a, a Roman who has not gone through the due process of law? So there's all that discussion at the end of chapter 22. So now this is where we're sitting in our context. So here the Roman commander, he wants to know what's true. This is his job. He's a police officer. He's doing an investigation. So he's going to bring Paul, where we begin our context, he brings Paul before the Jewish council this next day so that he can find out what's true. What are the Jews accusing Paul of? Is Paul guilty of this? And then on his role and responsibility, what's he supposed to do with Paul? Is he supposed to turn him over to the Jews? Is he supposed to discipline Paul himself? Is he supposed to just release Paul? So he needs to know what is true. And, he's, and we're told that he commands the Jews to come and appear, and it's, it's before this council. And this council, this is the Sanhedrin, and this is where we're going to kind of springboard in some, into some different, um, not really different topics, but topics that find its foundation in what this Sanhedrin is. So the tradition of this, this council, these are leaders of the Jews, um, and it's not the political leadership, this is the religious leadership. And there's 70 men that are on this council plus one, plus the high priest. And that number comes all the way from Moses' time. As God used Moses to deliver the Jews out of Egypt, Moses feels like he's the only one. Like he feels like he's the only one that's being called to this duty and this job. We see in Exodus chapter 18 when his father, so this is after they've come out of Egypt and you have the nuances that are going on right there. His father-in-law shows up and he's watching Moses and his behavior. Moses is from the morning until evening. He's sitting as a judge to the people trying to mediate their issues. And Jethro's looking at Moses, it's like, the, you're, you're gonna die. And the people are going to die and become weary through what you have going on. This is, this is not wise. This is not helpful. Let me give you some advice. You need to go to the leadership of the different tribes. Those men who are known for their leadership already. These men who are able to do the work. These men who are known for standing for what is true. 
and these men who will judge in righteousness, not in wickedness. These are the individuals that need to come alongside of you and to help spread out the burden that is upon you and let them judge the, the cases amongst the people Maybe they're leaders of 10, maybe they're leaders of 100, maybe they're leaders of 1,000. And the difficult cases, let them bring to you. And we see this kind of mentality in our own legal process today, right? So you travel on in the, those 40 years in the wilderness. You have the appointing that's there in Exodus 18 of these, of these men from the other tribes. Exodus 19 is when God shows up. Exodus 20, he audibly speaks the Ten Commandments. Um, and then you start getting to the, into some of the, the laws that the Lord hands down at that point. And in the subject matter of the laws, many, uh, there's a lot of repetition that comes back to not being partial, to standing for what is true, to make sure that you don't uh, judge a poor person based upon their poverty, to make sure that you don't honor a rich person based upon their wealth. There's a lot of warnings that are given. She sits in Numbers chapter 11, and Numbers 11, this is where it says the people start complaining. They're sick of the desert. They're sick of wandering. They're sick of eating manna every single day. Manna, it's, what is it? And they're complaining. But in, the, in, the, in Numbers 11, it uses this word that there's a mixed multitude in the people. So not only Jews came out of Egypt, a lot of Egyptians came out of Egypt with them too because they feared the God of the Jews. And it talks about the, that the mixed multitude, that they yielded to intense craving. And I, went, I went to look up the word this morning before, and this is while we were in prayer and opened up my laptop and just, you know, looking up what this word means. Because I'm looking for context. What was the intense craving that they were yielding to? And again, that those, those words, it just means here's, here's a, an ungodly desire that these individuals and this community was desiring and lusting after, and we're not told what it is. The context of the passage is that they're sick of eating manna and they want meat. I'm sick of what God is providing for me. I want what everybody else in the world is eating. Give me something else to eat. So whether that's that intense craving, but what this boils down into, so Moses is listening to the people. God is sending a plague because of the complaining of the people. And then you have Moses sitting in this prayer like, God, these, these are not my people. These are your people. I, I'm not the one that gave birth to them. I'm not the one that is carrying them on my shoulder. These are your people, and they are, they're worn out of me. How, how am I going to give this mass the meat that they're, ask, that they're looking for me to provide? God, if you don't do something, would you please just kill me now? This is Moses' prayer. And this is, this is God's response. So God's response to Moses in this section is I want you to gather 70 of the men from the earlier group. These men who were able to do the work, these men who were known for truth, these men who will judge in righteousness. And the spirit that I have placed upon you, Moses, I will take of that same spirit, and I'm going to place it upon these 70. And we're told in that circumstance that those 70, that 68 show up, the Lord takes his spirit, that he had placed on Moses and places that authority and that appointing upon those 68 men that show up and that they prophesy on that day. And it's the only day that they prophesy. They never did it again. 
And then Joshua comes running and tells Moses, hey, the two guys didn't show up. And they're in the middle of the camp, and the Holy Spirit came upon them also, and they're prophesying in the camp. Moses, tell them to knock it off. And Moses, Moses' comment in his prayer, he says, I wish, I desire, I want the spirit that God has placed upon me, his spirit, I want the spirit of God upon every single man and woman in the camp. And again, we, we sit in the context of Pentecost, when Jesus, through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the Father and Son sending the Spirit to be upon his people and to dwell within his people, that is the fulfillment of Moses' prayer those centuries before. We sit in the root of this council of the Sanhedrin, because when you travel along with the Jews, when, when the Babylonians, when the Lord uses the Babylonians to discipline them, to break them of their idolatry, this, this newness, when the Jews come back into the land and the temple has been destroyed, their religious practices shift. And in their religious practices, this is where the, the root of this Sanhedrin takes place. But again, think about what they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be leaders, religious leaders for the people. They're supposed to be men who love God above all. They're supposed to be men who love people. Again, you can go sit in Leviticus 19, those instructions that are given to those who sit as judge. In Leviticus 19, the, the command that we have, the second greatest command to love your neighbor as yourself, the context of that is in judgment. Don't stand, don't take a stand against your neighbor's life to seek their death. Don't be partial in your judgment to somebody who is poor. Don't give undue honor to somebody who has honor in your culture. Judge righteously. Judge in truth. Don't be in the position that you've been appointed to for your own self and for your own benefit and for your own lusts and your own desires. You are here to be a representative of God. Does that make sense? So when you fast forward it to our context, here you have this council. The head of the council is the high priest, Ananias in this section. So during Jesus's trial, it's Annas and Caiaphas. The high priests are in the Sadducees in this two-party system, essentially as the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees sit in that role of, it's kind of like a religious aristocracy. They're the ones who are overseeing uh, the religious climates. They're the ones who have uh, the power in the decisions that are made. And the Pharisees are the second party. And in this two-party system, it's just as boring as trying to research the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant now or between a Republican and a Democrat politically. You can get into all the different nuances of what we know. Really what we know about the Sadducees just comes from Josephus. So we only know this little snapshot, but we're given in the context of where these individuals sit. They believe in God. They believe in the first five books of the Bible, the books that Moses wrote. They don't believe any of the rest of it. They do not believe in that there is an afterlife. They do not believe in a resurrection. They don't believe in spirits. They don't believe in angels. And these are the ones who are sitting as the representatives of God. 
The Pharisees, in contrast, they do believe in the first five books. Well, they believe in God, they believe in the books of Moses, and they believe in the additional writings, the wisdom literature, the prophetic literature, the historical literature that we have in our Old Testament as the Word of God, and they're sitting in conflict with one another. But as often as we see, you know, just in the world, and we see it in the Bible a lot, when there is a common enemy, even people who are divided will come together in opposition to the common enemy. And at, at this moment, Paul is the common enemy. So they are gathering together because Paul is a man who is troubling the Jews in Jerusalem, and he is troubling the Jews all throughout Asia, Macedonia, Greece, Achaia. He's trying to get to Rome. This man needs to be stopped. So they're gathering together to do away with this man who is unfit to live is their vantage point that we saw a couple weeks ago. So you have the high priest, the one who is leading this group. Paul is standing before them in judgment and giving testimony in defense of himself. And what does he say? As, and again, this, this word that he lived, it's, it's as a citizen of the children of Israel, I have a good conscience. What is the man who is to represent God, to represent the word of God, to represent the law do? Strike that man on the mouth. And Paul, yeah, we, we, don't, we, don't have, we don't have his tone. We don't know if he's calm. We don't, I mean, my Bible's got an exclamation point after he's calling this the high priest a whitewashed wall. So we don't quite have his tone. But it's, it's, we understand Paul's response as a rebuke to the high priest. You are standing here as the ultimate judge in this circumstance, and you are breaking the law that you were, that you were supposed to stand for. Now, this is what we know about Ananias as the high priest. And again, we only have a snapshot from Josephus and one other writer. He's known as a cruel man. He's known as a proud man. He's known as, he is not, and again, depending on the vantage point of an individual or a group, he could be seen as a high priest of God, and he could just be seen as a puppet of Rome, because Rome is the one who appointed him as high priest. So he is under Rome's thumb. He is a collaborator with Rome. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you sit in the zealous, the zealots, the political factions of the time. There are many within the Jewish culture that would want to see this man dead because of his collaboration with the Romans. He is known as a man who he's seeking his own power. He's seeking his own prestige. He's seeking his own position, his own money. And he's, he's sitting as a judge to represent God. And he's judging. He thinks he's fighting for God, right? And Paul's already given the testimony. I used to be you. I have your same zeal. And I found myself to be fighting against Jesus until Jesus made himself known to me. And as Paul is giving his testimony, he's letting this man know in his words, you were fighting against God. You were supposed to be standing for the law, and you were breaking God's law, you whitewashed wall. Now, what's a whitewashed wall? 
Jesus uses the same phrase uh, in a whitewashed tomb as he is railing against the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 23. He uses this, the same word, this idea of this, there's the outward stuff. You're in agreement with what people speak outwardly. You're in agreement with those who you align with politically. You are in agreement with those who you align with religiously. You are presenting yourself to be on the outward. Everything's great. You're wearing the right robes. You're using the right words. You are upholding the right things. On the outside, you look fabulous. But what is God's attention from the beginning of Genesis all the way through Revelation? Where does God focus? What's going on inside of all of this is what God is focused on. This, this outward stuff, it's wearing thin, wearing out. I'm a middle-aged man, and I'm starting to recognize, you know, that there is an end to this body. It's really easy to focus on the outward stuff. Focusing on the inward stuff, why don't we do it? It's extremely uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable to look at yourself, whether physically, mentally, spiritually, and just say, I'm wrong. I'm not as good as I think I am. I'm not who I claim to be. I'm not where I want to be. Oh, I can sit in my outward resume and I can hold myself up against who I want to hold myself up against and exalt myself above others. I can make myself feel really good on that outside. Again, like sit with this, sit with this man as judge. Put yourself, put yourself in this position. Mom, dad, just a friend, whatever. You're, you're sitting there as a mediator and you, have, and you have this position of authority and whatever it may be. With your employee, you're saying, and you, you would, those words would come out of your mouth. Strike that person on the face. You're not good. You're not moral. You stand in opposition to everything that I believe in. You shut up and, you, and when you shut up, have some pain when you do it. Strike them on the mouth. And this is the, the, um, the application that you individually sit with God. God, can you, can you deal with this? <laughs> my thoughts, my heart, um, my depression, my anger, my worry, what, whatever is on the inward that I am hiding from and that I am hiding from other people, Lord, you tell me, your word tells me, your word promises me through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, through my faith in him, you have given to me a new heart. Create in here a clean heart. Create in here, Lord, a place that is fit for your holiness. As we were, as we were singing at the, end of, at the end of that last song, you know, singing hallelujah and singing God's holiness and his worthiness. The, do you have a, an inkling of an understanding of what it means that the holy creator of the heavens and the earth lives in you? 
I'm sorry, Lord, for what a mess I am in here. And I can't do a single thing to clean it up. I've tried. I can't turn the light on in my darkness. I can't change some aspects of my personality that I want changed. I don't find myself doing those things that I yearn to do. I find myself doing the things that I hate doing. God, I don't want to be Ananias. I don't want to be a Sadducee. I don't want to be a religious leader. I don't want to be white on the outside and black and dark on the inside. You promised to deal with the inward man, Lord. Deal with me. Be tender. (laughs) Praise you for your patience, God, how you have suffered long with this man. But you know the cry of my heart, Lord. You're here, you're present, you see, you know. You know where I'm struggling, you know where I'm fighting. And there's this idea like God, when we lack something and we ask God, we're told we're gonna study James coming up, so I've already been studying it a little bit. We're told that God gives to us, not with, here you go, you moron. I know that you need this. I can't believe that you need this, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. You're such a loser. That's not God's attitude. He longs as a good father. I know what you need. You need me. And I'm here to give you all of me without reserve. So there ought to be no fear in running to him. You, he already knows everything, right? He knows everything that you have going on inside. He knows. He sees. He's present. And this is where, like, one of the springboards is, is in that chapter in, in Numbers 11 where the people are complaining. My dad sent me an article this week. Uh, it's written by Francis Chan. It's really an article of an article that he wrote, but just quoting his confession, so for those of you who know Francis Chan, who he is he, is, he wrote something confessing his inner heart. And it was the heart of complaining. It was the heart of division. And one of the quotes was that he has spent much of his Christian life hating other believers. And again, he, he's sitting in this conviction of this, but this is where the idea comes from. Okay, we're Calvary Chapel. We have our tribe and our camp and our little segment within the body of Christ. And within Calvary Chapel, there are, there's distinctions of beliefs and there's distinctions of philosophies. And when you get amongst your own, what is it really easy to do? It's really easy to complain about the guys down the street. Well, do you hear what those Baptists are doing? How about the Catholics? The Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Protestants, the Reformed, all those non-denominational guys. Anyway, how many times have you picked up the rock to execute a brother and sister who disagrees with you? That's what Paul is using that human trait in the division between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He brings up a a line that he knows is going to divide or that's going to bring about the division that's already there within this council. As we sit in this idea of complaining in Numbers 11 where the people are complaining, even as they're complaining in their tents, like God's not ignorant to it. Um, we were talking about this morning, and, you know, Francis Chan brings it up too. It's like there's a lot of things that we do not say publicly 
but that we'll have a one-on-one conversation with our spouse, with a friend, with a small group of people. We will malign others just like that. I'm guilty of it. I know that you're guilty of it. We have a flesh tendency to exalt ourselves in opposition to others. But ultimately, what this, this idea of complaining, it really comes down to a, it's, it's a, it is blasphemy straight out against God. You are not complaining about people. You are not complaining about your circumstances. You are not complaining about the politician or whatever it may be. You are abusing God verbally with your mouth, with your heart, and with your mind. And this is something in Numbers 11. Again, this, is, this aroused the anger of God. In Numbers 11, what are they complaining about? I'm so sick of God's provision. I want something else that God's not given me. They don't say that, but that's what it means. And it uses, God uses the, again, the human emotion of anger to help us understand what it is that we're really saying when, God, I can't believe that I am in these circumstances. Who's sovereign of your life? The Bible tells us who places authorities on civil go- in civil government. Who? Biden is not the Democrats' fault. Trump is not the Republicans' fault. Whoever is in office is God's fault. So how does that change about how we think and how we meditate and the words that come out of our mouth? However, does that mean that Biden is always right? Does that mean that Trump is always right? And does that mean that every religious leader is always right and we're not supposed to say anything bad about anybody? No. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, you have as the, the judge in this, in this environment, when you judge righteously and you say this individual is righteous and this individual is wicked, the wicked person gets punished. And in Deuteronomy 25, what is the authority that God gave to the judge in that period of time was to take a stick or a whip and flog somebody 40 times. Have the wicked person lay down if they deserve it and have them whipped 40 times. Punished. So as Paul is sitting in this environment... How many times was Paul beat with 40 lashes minus one? Five times. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, five times from the Jews he was judged, laid down before the the synagogue, the, the council, the city, whatever that environment was, and he was publicly whipped 39 lashes, and they do 39 just in case somebody miscounted. You know, you don't want to do 41. You can't go over. Three times he was beaten with rods. So as Paul is in this environment, as he's dealing with religious leaders that are not the character that God is seeking to create in every single one of us, Paul being transformed by Jesus Christ and, again, having his character transformed in the sense of he was no longer fighting against God. He was fighting for God. He brings up, and again, there's, there's 
he's not just bringing it up to, uh, to throw division, to divide the crowd. He's bringing up the reality of why is he being judged? Because he has a hope. He has a confident expectation in who Jesus Christ is and the resurrection of the dead. I am only in this room because I confidently believe that Jesus Christ is who the word of God tells me that Jesus Christ is. I am only here because I am confident that there is a resurrection from the dead. I am confident that this life is not all there is. I am confident that there is a spiritual world where the Lord has taken me through multiple experiences in life and made himself manifest and known to me that I, uh, there's, there's no way I can deny. Oh, I forget and I have doubts and I have to remember and all those kinds of things, but I am confident. That is why I do what I am doing because he has given me a hope that my brokenness that I see, he's the solution. He's fixed it, right? There is this confidence that there is coming a day when I take my last breath, that through his death burial, the proof of his resurrection, that I too am going to be resurrected in a new permanent life in his image. This is why Paul is enduring all of the judgments that he's gone through, all the whippings that he's gone through. That's why he has been in, in, in his relationship with God. The Holy Spirit has testified that he's going to be bound and he's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. He knows what that means, but he is there in confident expectation. I am here because of Jesus, and I am here because I have a hope and a confidence that I am going to live forever in his image and his image alone. And within, this, and within this body here of Sadducees and Pharisees, Paul now becomes not, uh, he now becomes a, a side issue to what these guys argue about all the time. And that is, is there resurrection from the dead? Yes or no? So when Paul says, this is why I'm here, those who are in agreement with him, they now can't say, they can't disagree with them. So they're standing firm on, yes, there, there is a resurrection from the dead and opposition to their, you know, opposing religious party, the Sadducees. And their line that concluding line is that let us not, let us not fight against God. Um, Gamaliel brought that up earlier in Acts chapter 5, and it's, it's part of the springboard in the conversation this morning of when we find ourselves complaining like those in Numbers 11, when we find ourselves um, seeking after our own intense cravings, those evil desires that we have, those desires that are in contrast to God, to his counsel, to his will, when we're focused on the outside and we're not allowing him to attend and transform the inner man and the inner woman, we find ourselves, the reality is, is that we are fighting against God. And it's just a humble prayer, Lord, show me where I'm fighting against you. Show me where I'm stiff-necked. Show me where I'm in opposition to what you're seeking to do in me and through me because I don't want to be found in this position of fighting against you. 
I said that, that there were going to be a couple of springboards. The other one is where in verse 10, where the, um, the commander comes down and Paul, it looks like he's going to be physically torn apart. Again, this is, this is not a small little discussion where everybody's um, being nice and cordial. They're yelling, they're shouting, they're getting physical with each other. You know, Paul rolled a grenade down the aisle, so to say, and there has been an explosion in the midst of this group. Paul is, looks like he's going to get torn apart. The commander comes down and he takes Paul by force. This is a great word because in the Greek, it's harpazo, for those of you who know this word. It is a trigger word within Christendom. And this, again, I bring it up because Sadducees and Pharisees, there's a division of camps. With this word harpazo, there is a many different camps within the body of Christ because this is where we get our English word rapture from. And that's what the word rapture comes from. Very clearly, 1 Thessalonians, Paul is he's writing this letter teaches us that there is coming a day in the future when the Lord is going to reach down into the world and take by force those who are his. That's the word, rapture. What's the argument and division within the body of Christ? When's it going to happen? I have my opinion. I sit in, in my camp. As I've sat in my camp, I have taken up rocks and I have winged them at the head in those in opposing camps because I can't believe that you think that that's when the rapture is going to occur. I've been, I've been guilty of that, and it's wrong. I do have my opinions. I have my strong opinions. I am a futurist. I do believe that Jesus can show up at any minute and take us by force. I have my biblical arguments for that. But as I have aged, I've also sat in understanding, I see where my other brothers and sisters come from. No, it's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. No, it's going to happen at the end of the tribulation. I get it. I think you're wrong, but that's okay. You think I'm wrong. It doesn't mean that we have to malign each other and hate each other and question, man, I don't even know if you're a Christian. But that's what, again, I told you it was a springboard, but it's a springboard to bring up the same idea that we see that's going on in this. That nobody who reads the word of God argues that there is a rapture coming in the future. The argument is all based upon when. The caution that I bring up in the moment is to make sure that we will die for Jesus and Jesus alone, and that we have an open hand when it comes to things that are really our opinion. Um, and if, if everybody was on the same page, then that would mean that the doctrine and teaching was very, very clear. Like, no, there's nobody in the body of Christ who says Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead. I mean, it's kind of like a foundational, everybody agrees, that's the entry point to having faith in that uh, historical event, Right? Nobody disagrees that there is a day when Jesus is coming back and he's going to take his church. The whole argument is on side issues of timing. Verse 11, I think this is... Um, this is an idea and a reality and a truth that the more we abide in it, remember it, remain in it, you know, to, the, to a greater, the more often 
that I remember that Jesus is here all the time. It transforms my joy. It transforms my behavior. It transforms my words. When I understand that he is here, that he sees me, that he knows me, that he's leading me, that he is the God of gods, that he is the Lord of lords, that he is gracious, that he is kind, that he is compassionate. When I remember that he is here all the time, it, just, it radically transforms where I am in the moment. Because I, just like you, I get in my flesh, I get in the circumstance, I forget but if I wallow in the, the lack of remembrance that God is with me, what is growing in my life? Sin's going to grow in my life. Flesh is going to grow in my life. So this whole idea that in the midst of this journey, as, as Paul finds himself where he is, Jesus has been with him the entire time. And I really don't, I don't know and understand exactly the emotion that Paul is sitting in because Luke doesn't convey that to us. But when Jesus, when Jesus manifests himself to Paul, what does he tell Paul that he needs? What does he tell Paul to take up? Courage, no, courage. Be of good cheer. If I were Paul, I think I'd be pretty miserable in the moment. Paul already knows what it's like to get beat. And if you already know what it's like, and you think that it's coming down... You know, you think it's going to be in your near future again. That's, that's kind of worrisome. It's stressful. It's fearful. But what does Jesus tell him? Paul, be of good cheer. Take courage. Where? In yourself? No. I'm here. I'm in control. You have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem. This is what your heart has longed for. And you will be a witness for me where? In Rome. This is a, this, as Jesus shows up and gives this snapshot to Paul, this is going to come up again. It's, a, it's in Acts 27, 25, and it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because out of Paul's mouth, he says, I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. And it, it's just a great sentence of faith. I believe God that it, whatever it is, the future, ultimately, that it will be just as it has been told me. I believe that there is coming a day when I will take my last breath here. Whether through death or through rapture, there is coming a day. I confidently believe that my future eternity and your future eternity in Christ will be just as it has been told us. And this is, this is why God manifests himself to us. This is why he reveals himself to us. This is why he makes himself and his will known to us. So that we can freak out or so that we can be courage, courageous in the moments of life. Courage revolves around the words that come out of your mouth biblically. More often than not, being bold, being courageous. Yes, it's, it's our actions, and yes, it's the internal attitudes, but so often it comes with the words that come out of our mouth. I could be very bold in my cursing the darkness of the world. I could be very bold, in, in, and I have been very bold in my opinions and how they stand in opposition, and my opinions are right in, in regards to relationships and ideas of brothers and sisters. 
But here, the, the boldness that we are to have is boldness in praise towards God, boldness in repeating and confessing and committing ourselves to what it is that he has revealed to us so that we can, with Paul, say, I believe that it will be just as it was told me. So for this moment, that, this word, when Jesus shows up to Paul in this circumstance, Paul can confidently say his death is not tomorrow. His death is not going to be on the journey to Rome. Jesus just told him, you are going to be a witness to me in Rome. And from then on, from that word, nothing can stand in opposition to the will of Jesus in Paul's life. Amen? And we're not going to get to the rest of the chapter. You're welcome. Worship team, come on up. Heavenly Father, I want to give you, again, great just um, gratitude and thanks that you have given us this, this book that we call the Bible, these words that we know are your words, because I need them, Lord. Even in this section where Luke is relating to us a historical experience, as I asked you, what this means and what it, what it means to me and us as a congregation right now, what it means to us and in our context and just in the world that we live. Lord, you gave me the reminder this week that I live for the hope that you've given to me. You have given me the confidence, Lord, that there is a resurrection of the dead. I'm thankful for that, for that truth. Because apart from it, Lord, my understanding of my life is absolutely miserable if there is nothing beyond. So I thank you for entering into my life, into my context, and shining your light into my darkness, and for giving me hope for eternity, Lord, but, and, 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 not just but, but, and, the hope for today. Thank you for telling me that you were always with me. Thank you for giving me this, this, this story with Paul, Lord, where here was an evening where you spoke to him. And Luke wasn't there. That means Paul took those words and he shared them with Luke. I'm thankful, Lord, for the times that you have spoken to my brothers and sisters, and they come and they tell me what it is that you've said, what it is that you've done. Thank you for your witness in their lives, Lord. Thank you for transforming them. Thank you for that promise. Thank you, Lord, for all the, 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 um, the instruction of the character that you are seeking to create within each of us. Lord, make us to be men and women of truth. Make us to be men and women who judge and discern what is righteous and what is wicked. Lord, cause us to be men and women who are not complainers, but who are content in you, regardless of what's going on on the outside, 
and that you would flood us with your love and your joy and your peace on the inside. Here we are, Lord. We are fully exposed to you. And we ask, Lord, that you expose yourself to us. Let us see you. Let us know you. Let us understand you. Let us pursue you in truth, in joy, in righteousness, in holiness. Let us hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant today and for eternity. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.